Hi, I'm Natalie Alexander, and you're listening to The Next Page, the podcast of the United Nations Library, Geneva. Our podcast brings you conversations and event recordings with people from various fields. And today we have a special episode for those interested in digital records, as we look at the topic of digital stewardship and preservation. What does this mean? Will online records be there forever? And how do we manage long-term access to electronic information? We got the chance to have Trevor Owens, the first head of digital content management at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., here at the library recently to talk about the digitalization of our records in organizations and also communities. He's the author of the book, The Theory and Craft of Digital Preservation, which was published in 2018. And his talk is built upon what he says is the experience of many librarians and archivists who've over the past decades been thinking about how we'll be able to manage digital records. He sets out a set of principles for approaching digital preservation and also looks at how communities are working together to share how we can preserve records and in turn, digital heritage. He's also got some tips on further resources for those who'd like to learn more. Here's a curated version of his talk. Enjoy. So I'm thrilled to be here today. Thank you all for coming out for this talk. It was a very generous invitation. And I was also thrilled to be able to get a tour of the fantastic work that's going on here um, to digitize the League of Nations materials and work towards making those materials more broadly accessible, which is really exciting. And it's also, it's, it's fantastic to be standing here in front of such an amazing piece of art, looking towards the, the dream or the vision of peace. And I feel like in many ways, uh, the, a much more mundane version of that is sort of the, the dream that I have been working on in a little bit, which is a dream of digital preservation. How will we keep things for a long time? But it keeps in many ways with the, the sort of vision, the far, the long view take that we have here as we deal with the reality of the world as it is and look toward the dream of the, the world we'd like to be in. As noted, I'm the head of digital content management at the Library of Congress, but I am also an author. And so today I'm going to be talking through some of the challenges that come from thinking about digital preservation, working towards long-term access to information. There's a lot of hype about digital information. Will it last? Where will it last? How will it last? A lot of anxiety. Will it last too long? Will the things that I uh, am worried about come out and, and be around beyond me? And we as librarians and archivists are in this situation between those two spaces, trying to figure out and communicate how, we can, how we've been working on long-term access for, to digital information for an extended period of time. And so that is sort of the space that I enter into this conversation with you. And uh, the nature of my talk today is very much grounded in uh, my book. Someone mentioned that they, they saw me on the back of the book, recognized me from it. I do work for the Library of Congress. I'm on vacation right now. I'm, uh, so don't take anything as, as what I'm saying as part of the official statements of the United States government, but instead as a uh, friend and a fellow librarian sharing or talking about the sorts of uh, challenges we all face and the, the kinds of insights that um, I've helped or I've, I've come to understand about the nature of this work in uh, the decade and a half I've been, I've been working in libraries. The main anchor and focus of my book is on how too much about digital preservation 
um, ends up feeling divorced or taken away from a long history that we have in ensuring enduring access to digital information. And so on this talk, I'll take you through a tour of some of the, the things that have resulted from this, but then the, the second part of it is really about the craft, the, the work that, that has come together in the last 40 or 50 years. Uh, the, there keeps being a, a sense that we need to figure out digital preservation, but the reality is, is that we haven't ever figured out physical preservation, right? We have, uh, we have working theories and ideas. We do the best we can with what we have available. And there are, are very real constraints about how we use resources to enable long-term access to information, whether it's in paper, on film, or in um, uh, born digital information. And so I'll give a little bit of a roadmap. Um, so I'll give a, a sense of where I come from, my, my background and how I got into digital preservation. And a bit of that will also be the, the way that I found my way into this community, um, this community of practice that exists nationally, internationally. Um, it's exciting to be here with uh, all of you in this community, in this venue, as a space where we sort of share and reflect with each other. And then from that, I'll give my own short definition of, of digital preservation. I'm not sure, making sure everyone's sort of on the same initial page as we get into the discussion. And then I'll, I'll focus on what I, in the book, frame as 16 different axioms or sort of first principles that uh, I've come to see as the cornerstones of how we should think about and work through issues in digital preservation um, to ensure long-term access. But a lot of them are also focused on overturning some assumptions, some ways that technological society has attempted to reframe uh, the work of libraries and archives and sort of reassert core parts of our values and principles that exist in the practices and uh, work of librarianship and archivists. So I'll work through those principles and then in the end I will come back to the initial sort of name of the talk which is some steps or some ways that we can all get started on this work and um, my sense is that I'm surrounded by librarians and archivists uh, working at uh, a lot of amazing international organizations, which is very exciting. But my, uh, I, I do a lot of teaching as well. Uh, in my teaching, I work often with students at very small organizations um, or students that are working in partnerships with very small organizations. And in many cases, the sort of core work and the principles of what we need to do are, are very much the same. And so you might be at an organization that... Um, I've yet to find an organization that feels like they've mastered digital preservation. Um, uh, everybody feels like we're getting into the work and solving it and approaching the problems that we face as we go. And uh, there are a lot of opportunities for us to work more together. So uh, in the end, I'll go through some, some short list of ways that we can get started today, that everyone can do something proactive to move forward, which is often in digital preservation, one of the biggest challenges seems to be that it seems like such a sort of complex technical problem or challenge that it's difficult to, where do you start? And so in this case, one of the, the principal suggestions I have is there are many things that we can do right now. And uh, the, the main thing is to sort of orient ourselves towards action. Now we'll move into the, my, my very brief take on what is and isn't digital preservation because it's often a very, um, it means different things in different contexts. My take on digital preservation is that it's, all of the work that's necessary to ensure enduring access to digital content. Um, and so that means that it's not just technical, it's also social, and it's very much about how the work is resourced for the long term. Um, it's not something that you sort of 
you do once and then it's completed, uh, but instead like all of preservation has been for a long time, it's about how resources and staffing and all the sorts of work that need to come together to support digital preservation function. And so this is the animating definition that I'll, I'll work from, and then I'll work through the set of principles that I have as the next phase of this talk. So 16 axioms uh, for digital preservation. These are what I use as the sort of outline opening framework to the book, but I've also found that they uh, resonate best as a, a point, a jumping off point for conversation about um, how we do the work of digital preservation and how we support it and work together on it. So I'll work through these 16 and sort of talk through different points on them as I go, and then I'll share a little bit more about the, um, some of the immediate actions that I think these ideas present for all of us. For starters, um, the first one is the idea that a repository is not a piece of software. And so you'll often hear um, someone say something like, we're about to buy the, the new repository, or we're going to get the repository, and it will do all of these things for us. And this ends up being a problematic component of thinking about how to support and resource long-term access to digital information, because it's not uh, a software system can't do all of the things that the, the human beings necessary to work and, and, and to resource the work of digital preservation in the future need to be there for. And so it's all of the other things around that. Um, you know, the, the library here itself is a repository and what makes it a repository is the confluence of its staff, its finances, its systems, and its processes. And so in this case, that's, that's number one. Number two is that it is ultimately institutions that make preservation possible, which fits in many ways with the last point too, that the, our organizations are the things that will enable access to information in the future. Everything from the policy documents that we create, the way that we hire and retain staff, the resourcing of our functions, all of those things come together into long-term access to information. Even things like org charts and, and all of these aspects are part of that work. Uh, this isn't to say that everyday people don't also participate in preservation. Families or religious organizations, all kinds of institutions that live beyond us, each of our individual lives, are the cornerstones of this work. And they are just as much for digital preservation as they were for um, analog preservation. Uh, my third observation here is that tools get in the way as much as they can help. Um, so in many cases, the, the, the beginnings of a digital preservation initiative is to try and identify a complex software system that can solve all of the problems at once, which in some cases is, is a great starting point, but in other cases it can obfuscate as many of the problems as you have to begin with. So uh, a core element here is that when we're talking about long-term access to information, we're managing multiple copies, we're keeping track of those, we're um, checking them over time, and that we can use very simple tools to do that work, or we can use complicated tools to do that work, but every time we put something between us and that digital content itself, it can present um, its own challenges or its own problems in terms of uh, being able to access that information into the future. And so four is a, a, a little philosophical feeling. Four is that nothing has been preserved. There are only things that are being preserved. And in this context, uh, particularly with analog preservation work, it was possible to, to plan for the lifetimes of our materials to really account for how we would ensure long-term access to things. So getting the environmental conditions right 
and um, getting materials organized properly and, and sort of forgetting about them for some period of time could work to let those material properties keep materials around. But even still, uh, all materials erode and degrade over time. And so in this case, uh, that happens much more quickly with digital information, but it's true of all of our, our materials and objects that they degrade over time. And so it, it's also important for us to frame our work as an ongoing and active set of actions with our materials as opposed to treating it as something that uh, can be done once and then is accomplished. It, it, this similarly has implications for how we fund and support our work in that often there's a desire to create sort of single capital campaign style projects where you complete some set of actions um, and that can be a huge part of getting something started or moving. But at the same time, the, the long running costs for preservation are always going to be sort of resourcing that work well into the future. So that's the active phrasing as nothing can be preserved there are only things being preserved. Now, these are often things that, that I, that a few of the next ones are things that I often have to take to IT colleagues when I'm talking about um, digital preservation. And it's an interesting space for all of us to live in working with uh, digital information in that while librarianship and archival practice have uh, a long standing history and claim on knowledge in these areas, information technology has emerged as its own area of uh, intellectual work and, and uh, scholarship and research. And so we often end up having to engage with colleagues in IT departments and uh, figure out whose domain knowledge applies best in a given moment. And one of the core concepts in this is that librarianship and archival practice have a lot to teach information management professionals as well, um, information technology and engineering professionals. And so a key part in this is that Hoarding is not preservation, which is to say that um, just keeping massive amounts of material and, and not engaging with it, sorting through it, prioritizing it, all the kinds of practices that are involved in record, records management and um, archival processing isn't preservation because preservation requires access in the future. And so in that context, if we have massive amounts of information that is unintelligible or unorganized, it really pushes off the costs into the future for someone to make sense of that. And it's all the more challenging when we're dealing with digital materials that have a, uh, really complex dependencies on file formats or um, any number of tools or systems that are required to work with them. So hoarding is not preservation. And similarly, backing up data is also not digital preservation, which is number six. In this case, Often a conversation with an IT colleague can start with something like, oh, are we thinking about digital preservation? This would be back up everything every night. Um, and then the, the next point is being able for all of us to be ready to explain why backing up is not what's necessary for 100 years from now to ensure access to these materials. And that has to do with being able to talk about issues around management of copies, uh, how to recover from various kinds of losses, how materials get checked and verified over time, how we log and inventory them, all these sorts of aspect, aspects. So then the, the seventh point in, in this case, the seventh axiom, is that the boundaries of digital objects are uh, very fuzzy, and this seems very strange. It seems like computing should be a very precise thing. It's all ones and zeros, but one of the things that's challenging with digital information is that um, you can have a CD-ROM and you load it onto your computer and you boot it up and it works just fine, but beneath the surface, it may not be clear that that is calling a database on a server somewhere. And so if you want to preserve that information, does the disk actually even contain it or is it referencing some third-party 
set of material. Or in the same way, um, I think this is an interesting, a very interesting aspect for many digitization projects. The results of that work increasingly are things that researchers want to be able to engage with as a single data set. They don't want to look page by page at materials. So thinking about how to prepare those materials and make them accessible to someone who might want to approach them as a data set. But the fuzziness of these boundaries really gets at this aspect where there are dependencies and interconnections and even determining when a object is an object becomes challenging. So to someone, a single file is an object. To someone else, it's the website that that whole that um, hundreds of files, including that one, are contained in. And we end up having to make determinations about how to approach any set of materials and objects to work with. So in that case, you might archive a website, or you might instead save all of the, the individual files from it. And the approach you take is going to depend on who your community is, what your objectives are, where you want to go ultimately. And so we're up to eight, so we're halfway through it. And this is that uh, relates very much to the last point, which is that one person's digital collection really can function as another person's object or another person's data set. And so a lot of the language that we've used to work with digital materials over time breaks apart and becomes challenged when we start being able to approach all these materials simultaneously from multiple perspectives. And so in this case, even determining where objects begin or end or working through how we're gonna count or account for materials becomes challenging and requires groups and organizations to focus on uh, determining what's gonna make the most sense to their users in the future and being able to describe that, and that information in, in those capacities. Number nine is that uh, digital preservation is fundamentally about making the best use of resources to mitigate threats and risks. And so this becomes uh, an important aspect where it's not sort of ultimately a checklist that you need to work through, but it's really about how you mobilize the resources you have at hand to mitigate threats of loss. In this way, it, it makes sense to think about digital preservation in many of the same ways that we think about information security, that it's there's a threat model to be taken into account, you, and you prioritize those threats and you invest the resources you have in mitigating those threats. So the most basic threats that we face are things like if you've got one copy and the hard drive fails, all the data's gone. That, that, that really focuses on the bit preservation problem, the sort of most challenging problems for many organizations are those which are actually fundamentally very simple. They're about managing multiple copies and ensuring that those copies are not co-located with each other. And so in that case, bit preservation is both the most pressing risk and the most easy to address for investing in resources. More complicated risks are further out in the horizon and they have to do with things around file formats and the ability to render different works in the future. But it's essential that we, we work to prioritize those risks first by addressing the sort of most pressing aspects of bit preservation and second by planning for that longer horizon that has to do with the renderability and future accessibility of materials. The 10th is that the answer to nearly all digital preservation questions is it depends, which makes talks like this somewhat challenging. But the important point in this is that the specificity of a problem or a challenge is really important and that working through the issues that present themselves in that work is essential. And that's where the, the skill, craft, and knowledge of librarianship and archival practice is important. If what matters about a set of materials is how they, they look as opposed to if there's informational 
material about some digital objects that really all that matters is the text on them. You can start off by focusing just on uh, working with the text of those objects and not dealing with a bunch of the other complexities that come from other aspects of the files or the formats, where if you really have to deal with the artifactual qualities of those objects, there may be broader concerns you need to engage with. Um, you need to think about how to keep the original files as much as possible and work from them. But that means very different things when you're working with um, born digital manuscript materials, uh, where the original author, say, you know, Salman Rushdie's papers, which are at the university or at Emory University, those materials are, uh, include his own laptops that he had worked on and written on. And so everything from the sticky notes that he used in the Mac screen, all of those aspects are very important to the, the future use of those materials, but that may or may not be the case for organizational records in which the textual information may really be the core. And those kind of determinations are things that need to be thought through and ironed out for work. And so that's where the it depends component comes in. And so as I opened with earlier, one of the, the key aspects for this comes through in the 11th point, which is that it's long past time to start taking actions. As I'd noted previously, the most pressing concerns, that bit preservation work, is really about getting multiple copies, not keeping them not co-located. And that work is, is work that can happen right now, right, right today. And that relates very much to a, a, a point that I've sort of already gestured toward, which is that the highly technical definitions of digital preservation have actually been complicit in some ways in silencing the past in keeping people back from starting to do the work that they need to do from making and managing multiple copies by making it seem like digital preservation is a really complex technical set of processes that uh, you need to complete everything on a checklist before you've really started to do it or you need to master an entire domain of knowledge. But instead, the as I hope I'm illustrating in, in many of these points, there are these very basic actions that we can all take and get more involved in. And someone even working at a small historical society or someone who's in a part-time position as the only staff member at a museum can very much make progress towards managing their, their information. The, the next step turns into to some aspects of born digital information in particular that are, are really essential for thinking about the, the future of our work. And this is that digital media present an opportunity for us to be thinking differently about how we build our collections. So that collection development needs to come into conversation with the affordances of digital media. This is particularly important for organizations that collect around any number of topics or issues in their relevant area currently that don't just manage a sort of specific set of historical material, that things like social media or things like web archiving or things like the ability to acquire and manage data sets present unique opportunities for us to make sure that we're actually remaining contiguous with our missions and our objectives from the past. Because if we just focus on the kinds of things we collected in the past and not the intellectual trajectory of that work, we might miss out on huge areas that are essential to the future of our organizations living up to their missions. So in this case, if you collect serials and you're not getting blogs, what does that say about the continuity of your collecting practices into the future? Or in the same way, podcasts and AV material, that those, there are a variety of born digital forms of publishing that are really essential to be captured and, and organized comprehensively with the materials we've collected in the past. The 14th one, is that we accept and embrace the archival sliver. And in this case, 
One of the things that the sort of Silicon Valley mindset about digital technology brings with it is this belief that because it's digital now, we can just do all of it, or archives can be total and comprehensive, or that we should keep and save everything. But as I've stressed in some of the other points, the, the work that goes on to, to process archival collections from massive amounts of material into the, the components of them that are really essential and useful and usable in the future is, um, is still very important and it matters very much. This is part of that concept that we don't want to be hoarding information, we want to be accepting it. And when we do, then it becomes uh, somewhat liberating, but it also further emphasizes the need for being very deliberate about how we approach ensuring long-term access to digital information because there will only be a sliver of the material. Even if you think about something like the, the work the Internet Archive has been doing to mass preserve the web, it's still a very tiny proportion of everything that was ever on the World Wide Web. And these sorts of things will persist and the, the selection criteria that have been used and are being used will be very important for making sense of this in the future. Now at the same time, the 15th uh, axiom here is that the scale and inherent structure of digital information suggests that we need to work more with a shovel than a tweezers. And the, the, this is a, a borrowing the shovel and tweezers take from more product, less process approach to archival processing as well. But what's important to note is that a thing that is significant and somewhat different about digital information is that it comes with massive amounts of metadata. Um, born digital information comes with massive amounts of technical and administrative metadata, fi when files were created, all kinds of information about the creators of those files, that system generated, all of that information allows us to do work at scale in a way that we haven't been able to in the past. So this is the thing that will allow us to keep up with the fact that information is growing so rapidly, is that we can now exercise uh, judgments and actions against digital information at a, at a scale we haven't been able to before, procedurally through computational tools. But the same principles hold true for almost all born digital information, that there's so much metadata that comes with this material that the, a lot of the future of our work is gonna be about figuring out how to leverage that as much as possible to identify the chunks of work that uh, should be maintained and kept, and then using, as, using the precious resource that is the human time, the time that we spend with those materials to add value to them to enable discovery and access. And my last take, my last axiom in this case, is that doing digital preservation requires that we think like futurists. And the challenge in this case is that the ability to access digital information in the future is gonna be entirely dependent on what those future technologies are that we don't really know about. So a good example I like to draw on is that if you look at how transformational mobile phones have been for our interaction with and use of digital media. And another example is cloud computing. So when we developed a set of practices around how to work with materials that are on physical computers on our hard drives, and then increasingly people are working in Google Docs with the, the data that's not on those machines, librarians and archivists have had to very quickly come up with approaches to try and get people to when they, they donate their records, also give information about those accounts and download that material quickly because it's, it's essential that we have it and it doesn't even exist on the device that they are, are holding or working with. But when we think about various trends and, and technologies that are coming at us as well, things like voice interfaces for computing or uh, increasingly engaging with uh, augmented reality and virtual reality environments, all of these are kinds of things that we'll both need to be thinking about how to preserve in the future and they're sorts of things that we're gonna need to be thinking about how to engage with and provide access to materials 
from, from the past. And so if we get further and further towards places where people don't have computer mouses and keyboards, then we're gonna have to be ironing out what the virtual interfaces are gonna be that enable people to use those, those kinds of interfaces to the materials as well. And so that's sort of the, the point at the far end of this is that while there's all kinds of work we can do right now today to make progress, we also need to be spending some of our time thinking very long-term, um, thinking about how the trends that are shaping technology will play out for the future of our work. And so now I'll, I'll come to, to a few points and observations about things we can do to start today. And in this context, uh, I'll, I'll work through a few examples and I'll share a few resources that I think are particularly useful. So what things should we start today? There are six suggestions I have for everyone here that we can take with us and, and start working through which the, the first one is identifying what digital material we have that we need to keep. This is often something that's, uh, it's both true for our, our personal lives and for our professional work that we need to be deliberate about what kinds of things to keep. And then the, the second one is to start working at getting the boxes off the floor. And so in this case, thinking about those actions that are the most pressing the things, you know, if, there, if something you've, you've identified as essential uh, that you really need to keep, that you've only got one copy of it, then how are you gonna get a second copy of it? Are you gonna use a, a backup storage service or those sorts of things? And then the third step in that is, is building out a schedule or a plan for how you'll improve things and keep checking in on them. And I should say that these things scale to organizational levels too. Uh, it just becomes more complicated in those cases. So how you build teams together, how people start devoting time to thinking about this work. Then the next suggestion I have is to read the National Digital Stewardship Alliance's levels of digital preservation, which I'll point to the example where you can find it online shortly as well. But this paper identifies this the in five different areas around everything from storage to checking fixity that materials haven't changed, these different areas and sort of step-by-step -step things that can move you forward in each of those levels. And then the fifth, fifth observation here is to join these communities of practice that have emerged. A lot of this, there's a lot of ongoing conversation around digital preservation on in Twitter, if you follow the Digital Preservation Coalition as an organization, which is out of the UK, that does phenomenal work, the National Digital Stewardship Alliance in the United States, um, the International Digital Preservation Conference generally rotates between the US, Europe, and um, Asia in a, in a rotating capacity. And, and then I'll plug my book because I'm, I'm partly here on a tour for a book. So the theory and craft of digital preservation is really a longer form take on a lot of the points and principles I've put out here. And you can, you know, there's a good chance we're all connected with libraries. There's many great ways to get a copy of a book. So I'll share a few specific resources that I thought might be relevant to folks here today. One of them is the Archivist's Guide to Archiving Video, which comes from Witness, a nonprofit in the United States. This, if you Google this, you'll find it. It's just um, Witness's Arch Archivist's Guide to Archiving Video for activists, uh, works through very specific ways to produce video, to keep video, how to, how to ensure long-term access to that material, or at least get it further along the field than it has been. And this is hugely important for all kinds of work that activists are doing around um, human rights work in video. Uh, another resource I'll share, I mentioned the levels of digital preservation. So the National Digital Stewardship Alliance published these levels of digital preservation that include uh, the five different areas and four different levels of work. 
And again, this paper is, is posted on their website, but it's also freely distributed in a variety of different places. So that's the levels of digital preservation from the National Digital Stewardship Alliance. Then uh, another resource that is, is really excellent is Oral History in the Digital Age, which is an open access publication of resources and guides for working with oral history collections and specifically for producing oral history. More or less all oral history work that's done now involves creating born digital material, audio recordings, and then working through ways to, to ensure access to that material. And they've got some really great step-by-step -step guides that anyone can use. 